Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Natchang Rinpoche. Chapter 24, Part 2. Why do you have Nazi symbols on your mala? If I were answering a stranger, I'd simply reply that I didn't have Nazi symbols on my tenga. I'd answer in that way because it would have been an aggressive question and I don't let people get away with aggression. I prefer them to admit to it. I don't return the aggression, but I do suggest that they own it. As you ask, however, I'd not put you in the position of having to explain yourself. So my answer would be, it's not a Hackenkreuz. That is what the Nazi symbol was called. I thought it was a swastika. No, that is what the Allied forces called it. The German word was Hackenkreuz, which means hooked cross. Isn't swastika German? No, most English speakers think that, but swastika is a Sanskrit word. The clockwise version is swastika, and the counterclockwise is salvastika. In Tibetan, the word is yungdrung, which means changelessness. But the same spelling is used for both directions. But it's the same as the Nazi symbol. Again, no, the Nazi Hakenkreuz sits diamond-wise, turned at 45 degrees. The Jungdrung, swastika, and every other version in every other culture that it appears, sits square. Only the Nazi Hakenkreuz sits diamond-wise. This symbol, as it exists in almost all Eastern cultures, is a square. It's a Celtic symbol and it's used by many of the North American Indian tribes. I can't go so far as to say that only the Nazi Hackenkreuz is black in a white circle on a red ground, but I have never seen that colour combination on anything other than the Nazi symbol. And the direction? The Nazis could never quite decide which way it should turn. But in Tibet, it turned both ways and each had a specific meaning. The right turning Jungdrung represented the earth, male and Mahamudra. The left turning Jungdrung represented the sky, female and Dzogchen. This explanation is Buddhist. Yes. But I thought the Jungdrung was a Bun symbol. So it is. In Bun it is the major symbol and there it is used as the Dorje is used in Vajrayana Buddhism. In Buddhist Vajrayana the Jungdrung is often seen on the drapes at the front of throne tables. In each corner around a double doorje. In Bun it means changeless or unchanging and that is also what it means in Vajrayana Buddhism. Does it 
also have the same left-turning and right-turning meanings. There, I'm sorry to say, I run out of information. But Bun would have Mahamudra or Zogchen, would it? More or less the same as Buddhism, yes, and nine yanas like the Nyingmas. The same nine yanas? No, but at the level of Mahamudra and Zogchen, they're extremely similar. All I know is that the bun replaced the first yana, the vehicle of the listeners, with shamanic practices. In David Snellgrove's book, The Nine Ways of Bun, he describes the nine vehicles of bun as having a fairly as being a fairly accurate picture of Buddhism in Tibet, as their first vehicle contains the extracurricular activities in which most lamas engage. Can I ask what caused you to read about Bon when you're a Vajrayana Buddhist? This question made me smile. When I started reading about Vajrayana, there were so few books that I'd read anything I could find. Even wacky travelogues like In the Hidden Land by Henry Savage Landor. This made Annie Churying laugh and clap her hands together. You've more or less created your own degree course. Well, I demurred, I'm not good at half measures. If you're going to do a thing, you may as well do it. Can't fault that. So, as my final devil's advocate question, don't you think the Nazi association makes it contentious? and that it shouldn't be displayed because of its horrific association with Hitler. No, I think that this is all the more reason it should be displayed. Hitler wasn't powerful enough to corrupt a symbol that is 7,000 to 9,000 years old. People who feel that it should not be displayed make Hitler and the Nazi regime far too powerful. I'm more in favour of disempowering Hitler and the Nazis by showing the ancient and entirely positive use of the symbol. If I ever meet with this argument, I'd have both a Jungdrung and the symbol of Yeshitsogyal on my Chuddamaru Chirpen. The symbol of Yeshitsogyal is the same as the Judaic Star of David, so if people wanted to make an issue of it, I would draw this to their attention. Annie Churying burst out laughing at that point, and that utterly destroys my devil's advocacy. Thank you very much indeed. Then she laughed again. However, this is just another reason why some people don't like you. You have such fully researched answers. People really don't like to be quite so very wrong as your line of argument would make them. It makes people feel stupid. There's no winning, is there? No. I have no intention of making people feel stupid. I'm fairly sure you don't, but you sometimes make a very good job of it nonetheless. But of course, from what I have witnessed here, 
they bring it on themselves by making statements based on ignorance. Yes, I suppose I prefer to have no opinion when I know I know too little to have an opinion. That's entirely rational, but many people are not rational and are content to have opinions with no real factual basis. In terms of facts, I should say that with regard to the Jungdrung, you hit on one of the few things that I have researched in detail. There are many subjects about which I know next to nothing. Knowing what you know, when you really do know it as well as this, makes people fearful if they don't have a sufficient level of psychological health. Subtlety, shades of grey, are disturbing to them. The fact that changing the angle of a Jungdrung turns it into a Hakenkreutz or vice versa is too subtle for some people to grasp, and they'd be happier to abandon an ancient symbol rather than be faced with its 20th century implications. That is rather sad, I said. What percentage of the population have a level of psychological health that would be unable to cope with what I've explained? Annie Churying was quiet for a while and clearly trying to formulate an answer. That is impossible to say, for me at least. Low psychological health is only identifiable under certain circumstances. We all drop in psychological health when we're under pressure. There are some people who maintain a high level of social functioning when under pressure and some people who are hypersensitive to any shift from average expectations. Bearing all that in mind, I could only say that more people than you might care to imagine have poor psychological health. I sat there staring at Annie Chuying, somewhat taken aback by what she'd said. Finally, I took a deep breath. That is a sobering thought. I shall try to remember that. It's a somewhat massive cause for compassion. The time for the evening meal was approaching and Annie Churying had various allotted duties to perform. She left with a warm smile saying she'd see me at dinner. As the door closed on the library, I detected a strange sense of mystery in terms of the conversation that had just concluded. There was nothing unfathomable about what had been said it was the atmosphere in which we had conversed. I dwelt on the nature of the mysteriousness. It was visceral rather than conceptual, and after a while an idea appeared. The only experience of this kind with which I was familiar was that of romance. It had occurred on enough occasions in my life to recognise it, but... What had thrown me was the fact that I'd been conversing with a nun. If she'd not been a nun, it would have occurred to me far earlier and I would have known what was happening. I questioned myself immediately I had this thought 
and was quite prepared to believe I was entirely mistaken. I thought about my marvellous conversations with Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca. We certainly talked for hours without my imagining romance was in the air, so this was obviously foolishness. Maybe it was simply a matter of the stark contrast between Annie Chuying and Claudette. The same could be said in relation to Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca, but of course Annie Chuying was knowledgeable in terms of Vajrayana. She also had a good understanding of the technical vocabulary. I'd not had such a conversation before, and so, naturally, I'd be ebullient about it. That was all logical. That should have concluded the question of the mysteriousness, but it didn't. It remained. I detected the slight sense of looking forward to speaking with Annie Chuying again. Under normal circumstances, I would probably have built something on that, but this was a situation on which nothing could or should be built. It was out of the question. I concluded that it had to be something else, simply another reminder that my relationship with debt was moribund and had been so for far too long. Word had got round that I'd had a private audience with Galois Karmapa. Some seemed pleased for me. There were a handful of others, however, who looked at me with renewed hostility, as if I'd perpetrated some despicable swindle. There were wealthy sponsors who irked people because of what they could buy with their sponsorship, but I'd never felt bad about that. Vajrayana needed sponsors, and it seemed ridiculous to blame people for being rich. The world had its rich and poor, and as long as people's wealth wasn't a direct result of exploitation, I had no problem with it. I'd certainly have had no objection to being wealthy. If someone were to bequeath me enough money to live on the proceeds of investing it, I'd have no qualms about it. I was working class, but that was not a philosophical or political position. I did not see poverty as being a virtue. I remembered what I'd studied at O-level in religious education, and the quote came back to me. Then Jesus said to his disciples, It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? To which I would always whisper under my breath, Why, camels, of course. Then I'd amuse myself with the idea that one simply had to construct a larger needle. It was not the wealth that was the issue, but desire of it and what that desire would allow in terms of bad behaviour. As I sat there pondering such absurdities, Geraint arrived and sat down next to me at the dinner table. It's really quite nasty the way some people have reacted to you here. I'm really sorry about it. It seems so petty and ignorant. 
he commented. Thank you for your concern, Garant. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm actually thankful to those who had almost succeeded in denying me access to the empowerments. Because without them, I wouldn't have got to spend that amazing time with Galwa Karmapa. It's very funny in a way, Annie Churying arrived and added, because the whole thing just bounced back on Linnea and her friends. Annie Jinpa, the one who first locked horns with you, is quite furious about it. Jinpa, that's generosity, isn't it? Yes, Annie Churying sighed, the first paramita, the practice of generosity. There are some lengthy teachings on that from what I've heard. Can you give an idea of what that's about? A little, Annie Churying replied. It's about giving what is helpful and good without self-oriented motivation. There are three aspects to it. Giving material things, giving loving protection and giving loving understanding. The teachings on the first form of generosity, Zangzingi Jimba, explain proper and improper charity. It is necessary to abandon improper giving and to know what's proper to give. That's most interesting, I remarked. My knowledge of Sutrayana is rather poor. As you know, I never completed the Sutrayana course with Geshe Nawang Dage, so could you expand on that for my benefit? Certainly, if you don't mind hearing it from me, I'd be happy to explain as best I can. I'd be delighted. Can I take notes? Yes, but please don't take this as if it was a teaching. I smiled and gave a slight shrug to indicate that I'd do as she asked. Well, the first form of generosity concerns motivation. Motivation is very important in terms of being charitable, so it's improper to give something to someone with the intention to harm, with the intention to become famous or out of fear of your own imminent poverty. It's necessary to consider what you give. Ordained people should never give anything that can hurt others. They should never give anything that's helpful if they have harmful thoughts in mind. So it's important to reflect on the recipient of your generosity. It's not beneficial, for example, to pamper anyone who's obsessed or greedy. One should never be reluctant to be charitable and should never show antipathy, disrespect or scorn in relation to it. Real generosity is giving whatever is possible and doing so with good motivation and enthusiasm. There are inspiring stories about great beings who gave their own flesh to feed animals who were on the verge of starving to death, but not many can do that. So you give what you can to those whose need you can supply. 
The second form of generosity is giving loving protection to those who are fearful of others, who fear sickness and death, or who are afraid of natural catastrophes. The third form of generosity is giving the gift of Dharma to others. This doesn't mean speaking about it with anyone. It means helping those who have respect and understand and appreciate its meaning. You should only pass on teachings you've received from authentic lamas if you have actually understood those teachings. This is in order that distortions don't occur, so it's important not to mix the teachings with personal opinion nor to pass them on out of self-aggrandisement. Finally, the teachings should always be discussed in a pleasant environment and pleasant manner, which is why I'm sorry that Annie Jinpa hasn't been reflecting that with you. It gives you a poor impression of monastics. Thank you for that, and you know... You needn't be concerned about the impression I'm receiving. You're also here, so I am also getting a favourable impression. I think that it's the same anywhere. I think there are Nakpas who would make me deeply ashamed, such as the South African couple in Tintagel. Yes, what a sad mess people can make of their lives, she sighed. I hope that they're never tempted to go too far with their emancipative behaviour to the extent of causing any lasting harm. Annie Churying then, at my request, explained the other parameters and I made copious notes. That process took up all the time before the Pakshi Trullo empowerment and at its conclusion I'd had more teaching that day than I'd had since I saw Kyabje Dujjum in 1971. I realised that there was a great deal that I did not know concerning Sutrayana, but it was a vast field, and I wondered whether I would ever have time to become as conversant with Sutrayana as I was with Vajrayana, when there was so much I needed to learn concerning the three inner tantras. This was a question that I would have to ask Dujjum Rinpoche.